Hey, Moms and Murder listeners. This is Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed Podcast. And I'm so excited to tell you that I'm launching a brand new true crime comedy podcast called Obsessed with Disappeared. The podcast is an episode-by-episode recap of everyone's favorite true crime show, IDs Disappeared. So if you're as fascinated and terrified as I am by missing persons cases, this podcast is for you. My co-host for Obsessed with Disappeared is my best friend of 20 years, Broadway diva Ellen Marsh. Our podcast is full of humor, sass, heart, and also two decades worth of just the shadiest dirt on each other. So if you're serious about true crime and missing people, but you also love to laugh, find Obsessed with Disappeared wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes one and two are available right now. Before we get started this week, we wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the horrific murder of George Floyd at the hands of Officer Derek Chauvin and the wave of anger that has spread across our country as a result. If you've listened to our show for a while, you've probably noticed that we generally don't comment on political or otherwise controversial issues. However, we believe that racism is not about controversy, nor is it up for debate. What happened in the case of Mr. Floyd is unacceptable, and we believe that this is a time to actively participate in making a change. We would like to encourage our listeners who are able to, to donate to a foundation that's actively working to empower people of color in the U.S. and abroad, or to consider donating directly to the GoFundMe for the family of George Floyd, just as we have. We'll have a link in the show notes to the GoFundMe page, but you can find it at GoFundMe.com slash F slash George Floyd. Change can only come when we use our voices to speak for those who can no longer speak for themselves, and when we take actual steps towards change. We are listening, and we are learning, and we love you all. And now for the episode. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am hanging in there. How are you? (laughs) I really like look to your tone to decide how I answer every week. I just try (laughs) to match you. I'm going to go with just about the same. Doing pretty okay. Yeah. Hanging in there like the cat on the poster hanging in there. I'm in that sort of a situation this week, but it's good. (laughs) So over the last 130 episodes of this podcast that we've done, we have had a lot of stories about murders at the hands of a spouse. And in many cases, these types of killings are fueled by jealousy or anger over one of the party's affairs. This is another one of those stories, but it's not exactly what you might think. This isn't just another husband kills wife story. It's a really compelling tale of complicated relationships with some twists that you won't see coming. The story this week took place in Akron, Ohio, and before we get into the details, we're going to tell you a little about Akron in this week's segment of We Googled This City, which I'm so happy about, Melissa. I know you are on a Facebook break, but people in the Facebook group were really upset that we did not do Google This City last week, and I promised everybody that it would be back this week. Oh, that makes me so happy because I only had like one person on Twitter, and I was like, well, I guess it's dead now. That's fine. (laughs) Okay, well, let's get into it. Be prepared to be disappointed. Here we go. 
So Akron, Ohio is located in northeastern Ohio, and as of the 2019 census estimate, which is apparently a thing, has a population of around 200,000 residents. So hopefully by the time this show is released, the Saturday space launch went off without a hitch. It was supposed to be yesterday when we're recording, so it's Thursday. It was supposed to be Wednesday, but now it's been rescheduled to Saturday, so we'll see what happened. But if it didn't launch yet, I will probably edit this part out. But back in 1962, B.F. Goodrich of Akron, Ohio, designed the suit that John Glenn actually wore whenever he went first went into space, which I thought was kind of cool. So cut to current day, and for the 2020 launch, NASA originally considered a design by Massimo, but it seems that he and his wife, Lori Laughlin, are a little busy this year with prior engagements. <laughs> I need a laugh from you because I've already <laughs> set that joke up to you in a text to make sure we were on the same page. <laughs> okay. That didn't even land after I gave you clues on this one. Dang it. Okay. Wait, Here we can go. you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, can you hear I did me? laugh. That's why I'm surprised you didn't hear me. It wasn't that great of a laugh, though. I was expecting <laughs> a little more. I got a little cocky with having a week off. I got to be honest. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, Mandy, this one's just for you. Mandy, if you ever get a bee in your bonnet, I don't even know what I was doing with this one, <laughs> and are considering putting your chickens in a beauty pageant, <laughs> I don't know why you do that either. Just know that Akron is not the place for that. According to a city ordinance, this is such a reach, quote, no person shall die or otherwise color any rabbit or baby poultry, including but not limited to chicks and ducklings. Bad news for you. Super sorry. But no word on whether you can put flippers on their teeth or not. So... Akron is proud to be the home of the star of the movie Trainwreck, who also happens to be the king of basketball named LeBron James. He is their hometown hero, along with other people, but that's the big name I saw. And lastly, every year, Akron hosts the National Hamburger Festival, which even includes a competition that made my stomach turn called Bobbing for Burgers. <laughs> it's basically what you would think. During this competition, participants must take burger patties out of a kiddie pool filled with ketchup oh, all no. without using <laughs> their hands. Didn't we stop like doing things like bobbing for illness back in the 80s? I don't understand how that's a thing. It's definitely it's not things? going to be a thing this year no, for sure. <laughs> no. 2020 canceled all bobbing events. But I remember as a kid doing this with pudding. It was like a small slide. You slide into a kiddie pool of pudding and then had to find something with my mouth, take it out in the pudding that I've put my butt in as well because I've slid down the slide, get it out and spit it into this bucket. Or as it would be known for years to come as the only time Melissa swapped spit with someone until she had her first kiss at the young age of 20 <laughs> and still slightly less awkward. <laughs> Wait, so this is a real thing you did? With yeah, <laughs> I totally did that. And I also did not have my first kiss till I was 20. So both true statements. The joke is literally on me. <laughs> <laughs> it's disgusting. Isn't that so gross? A pudding I mean, thing? Yeah, I just don't... I. Don't know what kind of childhood you had. I didn't do that. I didn't have that in my life. You did not go on a <laughs> on a slide into a thing of pudding and find something with your mouth. Wow. Talk about a great life you've been living over there, Mandy. <laughs> don't judge my life. Hashtag, I don't know. I shouldn't do hashtags. Hashtag, no hashtag. <laughs> okay. All oh right. my gosh. Please get me out of this. So if ever there was anyone that appeared to be living the American dream, it was the Georges. 
The affluent family consisted of Ed and Cynthia George and the seven children that they had together. Ed George came into wealth in 1965 when he inherited a successful restaurant business that was formerly owned and operated by his father, Ed George Sr. If you're from the Akron area, there's a good chance that you are actually familiar with this establishment. It's called The Tangier, and its website currently touts it as the leading creative event center offering new menus with an artistic flair and a multifaceted off-site catering and special event service, all at a competitive price point. I think somebody got a word a day calendar because that's yeah. a lot of... <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful place. It does. It sounds very exciting. Yes. But back in 1965, Ed George Jr. was really just starting to turn this place into what it is today. When the Tangier was first opened in 1948, it was just a small pub, and it changed locations after the first building burned down in the 50s. And with the new venue, they began offering live concerts with famous stars, as well as five-star dining and luxury facilities for events such as weddings. Acts such as the Beach Boys, Charlie Daniels, and Tina Turner all performed at the venue, and in 1998, the then-governor, George W. Bush, delivered a speech there. At first, the establishment wasn't quite as booming. There was a cockroach problem, and the bartenders utilized little tricks to conserve the liquor to save money. When Ed Jr. took over, he added a cabaret and a ballroom, and the business really took off. Ed was considered to be one of the richest men in the Akron area. He was one of eight children from a Lebanese Catholic family, and he attended church regularly while he was growing up. The atmosphere at the Tangier could be described as Vegas-like, and it had kind of a cheesier element to it with its faux-painted walls, stained glass, and domed ceilings that had clouds painted on the inside of them. But even still, residents in the area thought that it was a pretty classy place to hang out. It was through this business that Ed was first introduced to Cindy after she auditioned to become a dancer at the Tangier nightclub. Although Ed typically did not show romantic interest or flirt with his employees, he took an immediate liking to Cindy. Cindy was born Cynthia May Rohr in North Canton, Ohio. She grew up poor, living in a house that was smaller than the average garage while her father worked in the coal mines. Although they didn't have much, Cindy's parents made sure to keep their tiny bungalow tidy and they raised Cindy and her siblings to be devout Catholics. Cindy was known for being able to easily adapt to new surroundings and blend in with different friend groups. She was strikingly beautiful, smart, and popular, and she was very involved in various school functions and activities with her high school. In her junior year, she was on the homecoming court. Cindy always had dreams of attending college and studying art and design, but her family's financial situation made the possibility of a college education pretty much non-existent. Cindy had another dream of breaking into modeling or entering the Miss America contest, but she was only 5'4", which made her too short for traditional modeling gigs. As someone who's 5'12", I was too tall for traditional modeling gigs, and also the face I was born with did not make it <laughs> Did not put me at the top of the list. So after graduation, Cindy took off and hitchhiked west. She spent time in Wyoming, Montana, and even Alaska before ending up back on the east side of the country and finding work in a U.S. Airways VIP lounge in Pittsburgh. But when that wasn't providing enough financially, she moved back to her home state of Ohio and applied for a job at the Tangier. She was just six years out of high school when she first met Ed, who was about 15 years her senior. Despite the large age difference between them, Cindy said that she knew they'd be together forever from the moment that they met. The couple was married in 1984, and the wedding was a really big event. 
By this time, Ed was doing very well for himself and was known as being one of the wealthiest men in Ohio. The ceremony and reception was featured in the Akron Beacon Journal. This is how big of a deal it was in the community. They were married in a Catholic church in front of friends and family who looked on in awe over the type of extravagant wedding that 44-year-old Ed was providing for his beautiful young bride. Keep in mind, Cindy grew up with very little and couldn't afford to go to college, so marrying a wealthy husband was something that Cindy and her family were really just beaming about. The newlyweds moved into a modest condo in Granger Township where they shared the complex with Lionel Dahmer. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the father of the one and only Jeffrey Dahmer, which I just think is a really interesting fun fact that like it's it's crazy that they lived in the same complex as Jeffrey Dahmer's dad. That's just so random and weird. It is. From there, Cindy began having Ed's children and she had a lot of them. She went through four pregnancies in a five-year period, and even though these pregnancies took a physical toll on Cindy, she was always happy for each new baby to arrive. And when I say these pregnancies were hard on Cindy, I mean she was pretty much bedridden for every single one of her pregnancies. And that's a lot of pregnancies back-to-back. That's very hard on your body, but she already had just like really a rough time in pregnancy, but she loved having kids and she just pushed through it and stayed in bed and did what she could. And she really loved that part of her life, having babies. Yeah. The couple soon adopted two more children. In 1992, the expanding family moved into a luxurious dream home, which they built on an 18 acre plot of land in the middle of farm country. The home had five bedrooms and five bathrooms and would be worth around two and a half million dollars today, which doesn't really seem that fancy when you consider the price of a modern day mansion, say like in L.A. or something like that. But in the area that they were in, this was really an enviable home to anyone. And especially considering most of their neighbors, you know, far down the street were living in these modest farmhouses. Right. One thing that some might find strange is that Cindy actually had her own space that was separated from the rest of the house. She had her own bedroom that was upstairs and it was almost like an apartment in its own right. And she had a microwave and a refrigerator up there. And all I want to know is why don't we all have this option in our homes? (laughs) King of Queens is one of my favorite shows. And at one point, Doug gets a refrigerator next to his bed. And instead of being like, wow, that's crazy. I always thought, that actually seems like you would save so much room, right. so so much time. Like I, I get the benefits there. I did not get the joke. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But when it came to the children's bedrooms, luxury items were really non-existent. According to the family nanny, it took the couple years to finish the part of the home where the kids were housed and their bedroom walls were bare plasterboard and there wasn't really much in the way of furnishings on that part of the house. But still, the couple provided a nice life for these kids. Five of the George daughters attended a Catholic school, and Ed was very involved as a father. He was always attending their sports games and being present when it came to their education. Ed was also a great father at home. Regardless of how late he worked at the Tangier, he would always get up each Saturday morning and make a big breakfast for the family. During the week, it was Ed who brushed hair, found clothes, and took all the kids to school. When it came to making meals and doing daily household chores, it was the nanny Mary Ann who did the majority of the work. Cindy never really seemed to be too interested in participating in typical family or household tasks. She spent a lot of time going off by herself while the nanny cared for the children. Marianne, the nanny, recalled that many nights she would cook a meal and the whole family, except for Cindy, would be sitting around the table eating. Cindy would come in from a long day of being gone, shower, change her clothes, and then leave again for the evening. 
It was pretty easy for Cindy to get away with this lifestyle since Ed was always working these long, late hours. We can speculate that Ed's workaholic attitude may have contributed to a sense of detachment within the couple's marriage, but either way, Cindy was living her life as mostly an independent woman. In 2000, when Cynthia was 46 years old, she entered the Mrs. Ohio America contest. Despite being a mother of seven, she impressed the judges with her poise and placed third in the competition. It seemed like Cindy truly had a dream life. Ed was providing the finances for her to live this lavish lifestyle with really nice and new things, and she lives in this gorgeous farmhouse, had lovely and well-mannered children, and still found the time to you know, see out this lifelong dream of entering a pageant. Cindy was mostly known as being very charming, friendly, and warm, but there was another side to her that only the closest to her really knew about. For reasons unknown, possibly stemming back from as far as childhood, Cindy struggled to find true happiness and to really feel settled. Some who knew her thought that she was controlling and aggressive and felt that she had no regard for others' misfortune as long as she achieved her own goals. Ed George had given her a life that she had only dreamt of, but in Cindy's mind, there was still something missing, and she eventually started seeking whatever it was from other men. While Ed was busy managing the busy kitchen at the Tangier, Cindy was often found flirting with the best-looking man in the building, and that's how she eventually met a man named Jeff Zack. Jeff was a former Israeli paratrooper and now a fellow businessman. Even Ed liked Jeff, and he became a friend of the couple's. Even though both Cindy and Jeff were married, they ended up finding themselves in a steamy affair, and we're going to get back into many more details of their relationship after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more things change. My skin is drier, but my hair is oilier. So for the first time in my life, I've struggled to really find a shampoo and conditioner that doesn't leave my hair looking greasy immediately after washing it. But thanks to Function of Beauty, my hair actually feels and looks clean and healthy every time. And that's because Function of Beauty isn't a one-size-fits-all. It's custom-made just for you. After taking the short four-question quiz on their website, Function of Beauty created my personalized formula. Within the quiz, I was able to select my five main hair goals. In my case, I chose strengthen, lengthen, thermal protection, anti-frizz, and hydrate. My special formula is exactly what I need and somehow still the best smelling shampoo and conditioner I've ever used. I chose their pear scent, but there are other fragrances that I can't wait to try. And if fragrance isn't for you, they also offer their products fragrance and dye free. Your custom function of beauty bottles are delivered right to your door in cute and customized bottles with your name, the fragrance of your choosing, or no fragrance at all, the color of the contents, color, and they even print your name on them so your daughter can't claim that she didn't mean to use your shampoo and conditioner because it literally is made just for you. I chose a cherry blossom scent, and it's one of those scents that just reminds you of springtime, which automatically makes me happy. Plus, now my hair has a great shine, is thermally protected, and never oily. So what are you waiting for? Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms for 20% off and to let them know that you heard about it from our show. That's functionofbeauty.com slash moms. If right now in life you're having a harder time dealing with things than you normally do, that's okay. Many of us are. And when I realized I needed a little help to get me through this period, I turned to BetterHelp. BetterHelp simply asks you a few questions and based on your answers is able to assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment. And you can begin communicating with them in under 24 hours. 
BetterHelp is more affordable than most traditional therapists, plus financial aid is available to those who qualify. BetterHelp is available worldwide. So whether you're dealing with stress, depression, anxiety, relationships, or more, a counselor is available to you thanks to the internet. And if you decide you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional cost. I love that I can not only talk to my therapist by phone or video, but can also message her throughout the week if there's something I really wanted to work on or get guidance on. My therapist, Lauren, is amazing, but is also a trash TV watcher, so she understands me more than most, and what I mean when I compare my brain to an episode of Hoarders. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we talked about how Cindy George's distant relationship with her husband eventually led to her infidelity. On the night that Cindy and Jeff first met, Jeff's wife, Bonnie, was also there. Jeff and Bonnie had been married for years, and Bonnie had come to accept that her husband had a wandering eye. The couple was having drinks at the Tangier bar when Jeff spotted Cindy, and of course she's dressed to kill. She's about to attend this extravagant event that is there that night, and Jeff's wife noticed that he was checking Cindy out from a distance, and she joked with him that Cindy was beyond Jeff's capabilities as as a mate, I guess, to attract. I really don't understand this game between husband and wife, but this is what they were doing. So um, she was like, don't even think about it. That woman is beyond you. And so Jeff replied, well, go watch, watch me then. And was basically saying that he was going to go up to Cynthia and prove that he could strike up a conversation with her and make her feel comfortable. So that's exactly what he did. But after a few minutes of talking, he already had managed to get his arm around Cindy and I guess proved to his wife, Bonnie, that he could do this. So then he invited Bonnie over into the conversation and it was kind of just all in good fun. And that is how they first met each other. So after a little while of this couple hanging out with Cindy, Ed walks up and introduced himself. And from that moment on, all four of them really became friends. But there was a little bit of an awkward moment in this first meeting with them where Jeff had complimented Ed on his gorgeous wife. And Ed said, quote, if you can afford her, you can have her. And then he kind of did this joking laugh and that rubbed Jeff the wrong way. And he later whispered to Cindy that she deserved better than that from her husband. So from that night on, Jeff and Cindy really became what you could consider very special close friends. Jeff had actually lived a pretty busy life. He was born in Detroit in 1957, and he was the first of three boys born to his parents. When he was nine, his father left, and the divorce affected Jeff deeply, leaving him with separation anxiety and a fear of rejection that lasted him into adulthood. He always played sports and lifted weights, and he kept himself in really good physical shape. But when it came to academics, he didn't shine so bright. His teacher said that he was intelligent, but he was easily bored, and he eventually dropped out of high school and spent the rest of his teen years selling pot and quaaludes. In 1975, Jeff vanished without a trace for three months before his mom received a letter from him stating that he had moved to Israel and was living on a farm and that he had joined the Israeli army and obtained dual citizenship. That's quite a letter. <laughs> yeah, especially if they if no one's heard from you for three months, that's a lot to take in. I mean, it's great to hear. I'm sure his mom was very happy to hear from her son, but that would be right. really shocking. You'd be like, wow, okay, I didn't Gentle know you were doing any months. of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So Jeff was actually 100% dedicated to the Jewish state, and he was willing to die for what he believed in. He wanted to become a pilot in the Israeli Air Force, but he didn't have good enough eyesight, so he became a paratrooper instead, and he went through training similar to what the U.S. Navy SEALs go through. While he was living in Israel, Jeff fully invested himself in learning languages, and he eventually learned to speak Hebrew, Arabic, Russian, and Spanish, in addition to, of course, already speaking English. Following his time in the military, Jeff bounced from career to career, always growing bored with what he was doing and looking for something new. By the time he met Cindy George, he had a vending company that installed different vending machines, including soft drinks, coffee, and snacks. He and his son Brian would personally fill up the vending machines with candy and snacks he purchased in bulk at BJ's Wholesale Club. Most of the time, Jeff was a happy man with a positive attitude, but he also had a dark side where he would explode in anger and start yelling and using his physical size to be more threatening and intimidating. As we said, Jeff was in a long-term marriage with his wife, Bonnie, at this time, and Cindy was, of course, married to Ed, but the friendship between Jeff and Cindy only became more and more romantic. This dynamic didn't really seem to bother Ed or Bonnie, and the separate relationship between Cindy and Jeff was kind of an out-in-the-open secret. Anytime someone would ask Ed about his unusual marriage arrangement, he would tell them that women were quote-unquote liberated now and that they didn't always assume traditional or stereotypical roles. Anyone who knew either Jeff or Cindy was well aware of how much time they spent together doing various things from cycling together to having Jeff come to the George home and do handiwork projects. There were numerous occasions where one of the many George children would be looking for their mother while she was tucked away somewhere quietly with Jeff. According to the nanny, Cindy and Jeff would often sneak into the attic together and lock the door behind them, or they'd end up in Cindy's room, isolated from the rest of the house. This was a very passionate and emotionally involved affair. Jeff's family said that he appeared to be very happy with this arrangement with Cindy and very happy that his wife Bonnie and that Ed seemed to have their blinders on about the whole situation. In the late 90s, Bonnie began suspecting that Jeff was having an affair with Cindy, and this put a strain on their relationship. Also around the same time, Cindy became pregnant with her fifth biological child. Cindy claimed that the baby was fathered by Ed, but deep down, she knew and Jeff knew that the child was his. When the baby, which was a little girl, was born, Ed happily accepted his role as a new father again. He was either in denial or he didn't care that the baby wasn't his, but he doted on her and cared for her just as he had done with his other children. Even though Jeff was aware that he was the father of the baby, he knew there was no way he could let his own wife and family find out about this. So Cindy and Ed were raising the baby and everyone who knew them, of course, just naturally assumed that this was Ed's baby. All in all, Cindy's affair with Jeff lasted for 10 years and it wasn't really all sunshine and rainbows. With every passing year, Jeff became more and more abusive, which eventually made Cindy pull away from him emotionally. In May of 2001, Cindy caught the eye of a new man named John Zafino, and she officially broke off her relationship with Jeff. Jeff became enraged when Cindy told him that she no longer wanted to see him or be in this relationship with him. His wife, Bonnie, remembered the day that Cindy called. She could hear Jeff on the phone arguing with Cindy, and he was visibly distraught when he hung up, which was actually very unusual for him. At, you know, after Sometimes he would kind of retreat and not really say a lot or be, you know, emotionally explosive. But after this conversation, he was visibly upset. Mm -hmm. And it was at this point that he finally admitted to his wife that he had been having an affair with Cindy and that this had been going on for 10 years. And 
He also dropped the bombshell on his wife that he was the father of Cindy's most recent child. So Jeff told Bonnie that the relationship was over now and that he never intended to see Cindy again. From this point on, things really got pretty ugly between Jeff and Cindy. Jeff was irate when he found out that Cindy had dumped him for another man. At one point, Jeff threatened to take the baby to Israel and live out the rest of his life there with her, but ultimately he stayed in the U.S. and changed his tune. He began denying that he was even the father of the baby. Bonnie wanted to believe Jeff and convinced herself that he was being totally honest with her, but unfortunately, this wasn't the end of the relationship and the drama between Jeff and Cindy. In May of 2001, Jeff started harassing Cindy and her family. He made numerous calls and threats to Cindy that he was going to expose their love child secret to Ed, and Cindy was terrified that he would do it and that Ed would leave her. It got so bad that Cindy and Ed actually went to the police about this harassment, but Ed was really reluctant to tell the police who was harassing his wife or why. He wanted the calls to stop and he asked the police, you know, what could be done. The captain told Ed that little could be done unless he wanted to actually press charges and file a complaint. Ed told the officer that he was going to try to handle it himself and that he'd call back if he ever needed anything. Ed never did call the police back or initiate an official complaint, but two weeks later, the calls and harassment stopped for good. On June 16, 2001, Jeff Zack was completing his typical routine of stopping at BJ's Wholesale Club to buy these snacks to stock his various vending machines. He had his van pulled up to one of the gas pumps at BJ's whenever a mysterious man riding a lime green and black ninja motorcycle pulled up. The rider had on a helmet with a black face shield on, and he casually walked away from the motorcycle over to the van where Jeff Zack was sitting, put a gun to the window, and fired one shot, hitting Jeff in the left cheek and killing him. The bystanders at the gas station really struggled to make sense of what had just happened. The mystery shooter calmly walked back over to the motorcycle and sped off. Several witnesses dialed 911 to report the shooting, but other than the color of the motorcycle, no one could give a description of the man or woman who drove up and shot Jeff in his van. By early that evening, the shooting had made news headlines and everyone in the local area had their eyes peeled for a motorcycle matching the description that was given by the witnesses at the scene. Investigators on the case had no idea where to begin. It didn't make much sense why somebody would randomly just drive up and shoot a man at a gas pump and then drive off. The people who were there stated that there was no arguing heard between the two men and that the murder happened really pretty quickly. There was one gas station attendant who said that she was looking out the window and she actually saw the shooter get off the bike and walk over to the van. And then she turned around for one second and then she heard the shots and she turned around again and saw the shooter get back on the bike and drive away. So that's just how fast it happened. That's crazy. And just crazy how just calm the whole situation was. The guy just gets off, walks over, does what he came there to do, gets on his motorcycle, rides off. Like no conversation, no arguing, no nothing. Right. I mean, I can't imagine being in that situation, being out in public and something like that happening. It would take, I feel like it would just take time to even register, you know, what, right. just, what just happened. Yeah. So one of the first theories that police started kind of thinking about was whether or not Jeff's murder was a contract killing. To find out more about Jeff's life, they started speaking with his family and his close friends. And of course, the first thing they wanted to know was whether or not Jeff had any enemies. So usually in crime stories like this, we hear the family and friends say that the victim had no enemies and that, you know, they have no idea why anybody would want to harm them. But in this case, 
Jeff's friends and family readily admitted to police that Jeff actually had a lot of enemies. Jeff was kind of a shady guy, as it turned out, and it was a definite possibility that he could have crossed the wrong person. When police spoke with Jeff's wife, Bonnie, it was she who suggested that they should dig into Ed and Cindy George. Bonnie told the investigators that Ed had good reason to want Jeff killed because Jeff had been having an affair and even fathered a child with Ed's wife, Cindy. When the detectives learned this information, it really moved Ed George to the top of their list of suspects. There was certainly a motive for Ed to have killed Jeff, and he had the means to have it done since he was such a prominent figure in the community and had a lot of money. But what the police end up discovering is a complicated web of lies and betrayals, and we're going to get right back into the rest of the story after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. I order a lot of stuff online. Groceries, clothes, home decor, kids' toys that will maybe keep them busy for 15 seconds. And now I can do what I love by shopping online while saving money thanks to Honey. Honey is the free online shopping tool that actually saves you money in real time by searching the entire internet for the best promo codes and applying them to your cart. Gone are the days of searching for that code you think you saw on another site to apply it to your order. Honey takes the guesswork out of it and helps you get the best price available every time. I've had Honey for several months now and actually look forward to check out just to see how much money I can save. On Mother's Day, my kids gave me a gift card to Old Navy and I immediately took it and went on to oldnavy.com to buy myself some tall yoga pants and a couple of tops. The price ended up being a little more than my gift card, but then at checkout, I saw the Honey box drop down. I hit apply coupons and Honey searched the internet and saved me an additional 20% that I hadn't found myself, which ultimately meant it saved me around $10, so I didn't have to pay anything at all after using my gift card. Honey has found its over 17 million members over $2 billion in savings, so why not be one of them? Not using Honey is literally passing up free money. It's free to use and installs in just a few seconds. Plus, it's now part of the PayPal family. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com moms. That's joinhoney.com moms. I love food. Love, love, love food. But I'm not a great cook. Not even remotely. If you don't believe me, just know that I once didn't have cumin at home and decided the obvious substitution was cinnamon because they both start with the letter C mixed with mayonnaise. It was even more disgusting than it sounds. But this is why I love HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, I am actually a good cook because HelloFresh sends me pre-portioned ingredients, which means there's less prep for me and less food waste, plus easy to follow step-by-step directions, so it's impossible for even me to screw it up. HelloFresh is not only America's number one meal kit, but they also are committed to doing good. In 2019, HelloFresh donated over two and a half million meals to charity, and this year they're stepping up their food donations even more. I've used HelloFresh every week for the past three months, and I kid you not, I've loved every single meal we've had. Most recently, I fell in love with the Louisiana-style tilapia with potato wedges, red cabbage slaw, and spicy remoulade. Tilapia is not my typical go-to fish, but the way it's breaded and cooked makes it delicious, and the remoulade adds a great kick to the meal. I thought that if I was using HelloFresh every week, it would get a little pricey, but with HelloFresh, you can actually save up to 28% by using HelloFresh versus my regular grocery store trips. I've managed to actually save a few bucks, plus I have delicious meals for myself and my family. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 60MomsAndMurder and use code 60MomsAndMurder to get $60 off your first three weeks, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. 
Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash 60 Moms and Murder and use code 60 Moms and Murder to get $60 off your first three weeks, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply, so please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. Now back to the episode. So before the break, Jeff Zach had just been killed with a single gunshot while he was sitting in his van at a gas pump at BJ's. The police had just learned that Jeff had been having this long-standing affair with Cindy George and that she had recently broke off this relationship. This information led investigators to believe that Cindy's husband, Ed, could have had something to do with Jeff's murder. The next day, the police went to the George's mansion to ask questions. Cindy was actually the one to answer the door, but Ed wasn't home, and Cindy was very uncooperative with police. She told them that she did know Jeff, but she didn't say anything more. It wasn't until the following day that police finally managed to speak to Ed on the phone, and he told the officer that it was Jeff Zack who had been harassing Cindy, but they had just learned of his murder when they read the Sunday paper. Even though the couple was reluctant to speak to the police, they promised to come by the station to talk to them some more. However, at the time that Cindy and Ed told police that they would show up, the only people who actually showed up were the couple's lawyers. The attorneys immediately informed the investigators that Ed and Cindy had no intention of cooperating with the police. But their refusal to help the investigation along didn't stop the investigators from looking for other clues. They remembered back to something that Jeff's wife had told them, which was that Jeff allegedly fathered the youngest of Cindy's children. One investigator looked through a series of family photos of the George family and noticed that the youngest child did appear to have a different complexion than the rest of the children. Police asked Ed George if he would submit to a paternity test on the child, but he would never commit to doing it. So a few months later, police were able to get a warrant and they were able to test the child's paternity. The test proved what everyone suspected. The youngest child born to Cindy was fathered by Jeff Zack. There were now multiple possible motives that the Georges would have had for this murder, but they still needed to find solid evidence that connected either of them to the crime or to the shooter, who of course has still yet to be identified. Since they didn't have any other clues or leads to follow, the investigation was put on hold and the media coverage tapered off. Detectives continued to quietly gather information, and after a year, they were all but convinced that Jeff's murder was somehow connected to his 10-year affair with Cindy. In late May, which was 11 months after the murder, a man called the police with a tip. He claimed that he was dating a woman who had told him that her ex-husband was the one to murder Jeff Zack. The woman that he was dating was named Christine Todaro, and the ex-husband that she was talking about was John Zafino, and that is the new man we mentioned that Cindy had fallen for and really was the reason that she ended her relationship with Jeff Zack. So there's a lot going on in this story. There's a lot of people yeah. who are connected <laughs> and that are getting involved. And it's great that ever, you know, these people are going to police with tips and stuff that they know, but it's crazy to think like how far out it goes. Yes. It is crazy to think like how many people that, you know, just, you know, and then how that kind of spreads out right. and things can come back to you. Yeah. So at this point, the police still didn't have a real connection between John Zafino and either Cindy or Ed George. But then Christine dropped the bombshell on them that her ex-husband was dating a woman named Cindy, and she seemed to be at the center of this feud between John and Jeff Sack. So at this point, when she mentioned Cindy, things really started coming together for the police, and they were able to confirm that the Cindy John was dating was in fact Cindy George. 
They spoke with several friends and associates of John and gathered that he had met Cindy at a bar less than a year earlier, and he often bragged about his, quote, rich girlfriend. Upon looking into phone records, it became clear that these two did have a relationship going on. So now that there was this established connection between John and Cindy, investigators had to work to find the evidence that connected either one of them to the shooting. Since all they really knew about this shooter was the type of motorcycle he rode in on, that's where they started. Sure enough, they learned that John Safino had purchased a lime green and black ninja less than a month before the murder took place. A friendly clerk at the records office offered to look up a picture of an identical bike so the police would know exactly what they were looking for. And when she did that, she actually came across an ad for an identical motorcycle that was for sale. When police checked into it, they realized that the person selling it was John Zafino's first ex-wife named Nancy. So how crazy is this? Like Mandy was saying, there's so many people involved in it, but it would take one small thing. Even the clerk looking like, hey, let me help you out. Let me get you a picture. Oh, by the way, this is for sale. Oh, by the way, this is who is selling it. Like how many huge, you know, Things just came up in the story. It's just crazy. So police believe that the bike for sale was the actual getaway vehicle from the murder of Jeff Zack. Of course, officers immediately went to see the motorcycle for themselves. And when they spoke with Nancy, she told him that she was all too happy for them to take this motorcycle and that she had received the motorcycle under what she considered suspicious circumstances. She said that John showed up at her home in the middle of the night saying he wanted to get rid of the bike. At this time, Nancy was remarried to a man who actually owned a car dealership, so John said he wanted to just trade this bike in for another vehicle. When police were able to connect John Safino to the motorcycle used in the murder, it was a huge break in the case. Also, how crazy. If he had maybe gotten rid of it and just like drove it into a river, you know, like he goes or back to his, yeah. anything, but to be like, I want some money back for this or I want a car out of this, that could be your total undoing in something like this. It's I mean, thank goodness, but it's just crazy. So one detective later said that it was a huge piece of circumstantial evidence and it was really just what they needed to arrest John and bring charges against him. He was arrested 15 months after Jeff Zack was killed and charged with aggravated murder. It was the hope of prosecutors that once John was behind bars, he would throw Cindy under the bus and implicate her in the crime as well. At this point, investigators still believed that Cindy was the one who masterminded or set up this hit on Jeff Zack. But that's not what happened. John actually refused to talk or give police any information that would incriminate Cindy. And so his case went on trial in February of 2004. During John Zafino's trial, the case was heavily presented with Cindy being at the center of this entire crime. Cindy was called to testify, but after she was sworn in, she refused to speak and exercise her Fifth Amendment right because she was afraid of saying something that would incriminate herself on the stand. But her silence really looked just as bad for her. The jury ultimately found John Zafino guilty of the murder, but they were upset with the prosecution that charges had not been brought on Cindy. Through it all, and even after John was sentenced to 23 years in prison, he refused to sell out Cindy and never once threw her under the bus. In fact, the two continued to write letters and talk to each other once he was behind bars. Investigators and prosecutors didn't give up hope that John and Cindy would slip up one day and they would get the evidence they needed to charge Cindy in the murder. So John made several phone calls from prison, which of course are all recorded, and he didn't really speak on the phone much to Cindy herself, but the conversations with other people are what gave the police hints that Cindy was in fact involved in this crime. 
In one phone call to his sister, John was heard talking about his appeals process and saying that he needed, quote, big lawyers that were going to cost a lot of money. And he then suggested that Cindy and Ed George would pay for it and warn that there would be consequences if Cindy did not cooperate. So the overall theme of this conversation of these types of phone calls was that Cindy knew what she did and he was, you know, saying like, well, she knows, you know, her right. part, so she better give them me the money to take care of my defense or to, you know, help get me out of here or, you know, whatever. So the calls were enough to finally charge Cindy with the murder. Of course, everything in this case is so circumstantial, but yeah. that is, but there's a lot of cases like that. So then it kind of becomes a likely picture of what, you know, what, what happened in the case. Cindy was arrested in January of 2005 and charged with conspiracy to commit murder and complicity to commit aggravated murder. Just before Cindy was set to go to trial, she requested something unusual that you really do not see very often. She wanted her case to be tried directly to the judge instead of having a jury hear the case. This would mean that Cindy's fate was in the hands of one person and one person only, and that person in this case was Judge Patricia Cosgrove. The case against Cindy was purely circumstantial, as we just said. They had never recovered a murder weapon. There were no eyewitnesses that gave any useful information. But yet the prosecutors insisted that there was plenty of evidence to prove that Cindy was the one who encouraged one lover to murder another. One piece of evidence that was brought to light was that Cindy's bank record showed she had purchased the alleged getaway bike for $5,300. This was assumed because a withdrawal was made from her account for that amount on the same day that John bought the motorcycle. The prosecution alleged that this proved the two of them had a plan and that Cindy was willing to help facilitate it in whatever way was necessary. Another thing Cindy paid for was John's cell phone bill. Officials later found further incriminating evidence against Cindy. Letters between John and Cindy painted a picture of her guilt even though she never directly confessed to anything. In one letter, while urging John to take the advice of their attorneys, she wrote, quote, pray for their wisdom. We cannot make one mistake, end quote. Prosecutors believe those words meant only one thing, that they were in this together and that they had committed this crime together. The prosecutors on the case created a compelling narrative about Cindy's life. She was exposed as a cheater who had been unfaithful to her husband for years and even conceived a child from an affair, and that she then persuaded another lover to murder the first one. Cindy's defense attorneys argued that John Zafino acted in the murder alone. There really wasn't one shred of evidence that actually proved that Cindy planned and financed a hit on Jeff Zack, and John Zafino himself had never implicated Cindy in the crime either. Cindy's therapist testified on her behalf, stating that Cindy had no tendencies towards violence and that she had been working to end her long-standing affair with Jeff Zack in an amicable way. Cindy did not take the stand in her trial. In the closing arguments, her defense team reiterated the fact that there was a lack of evidence and that this was really just a very circumstantial case. Once the judge had overseen all the information and heard from both sides, she took four days to settle on the verdict. It was a Monday morning, and Cindy's husband, Ed, and several of their children accompanied her to the courtroom to face the judge. Ed had stood by Cindy's side throughout the whole ordeal, and it was he who actually paid for her high-dollar defense team. All they could hope for at this point was the chance of an acquittal. The judge took her time reading over the charges and then explained her decision. Judge Cosgrove said, quote, Based on the totality of the evidence produced at trial, 
the court finds beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, Cynthia Rohr George, is guilty of complicity to commit aggravated murder for the death of Jeff Zack, end quote. Cindy was offered the opportunity to speak to the judge before the sentence was actually handed down. All Cindy had to say was that she had nothing to do with this crime. While Cindy's devastated family looked on, Judge Cosgrove sentenced Cindy to life in prison. But that is not where the story ends. Less than two years later, on January 7, 2007, Cindy's case was back in court. She and Ed had spent the last year working on an appeal, and there were no expenses spared on Cindy's possible second chance. The situation was unique in that the original verdict was handed straight down by a judge, so the likelihood that a court of appeals would then side with Cindy and not with the judge were really pretty slim. Yeah. But on March 21st, three appellate court judges voted on whether or not to overturn Cindy's conviction. And in a two-to-one vote, Cindy became a free woman once again. The prosecutors in this case were absolutely shocked because they believed that they had presented strong enough evidence and a strong enough case and that everything pointed to Cindy's guilt. But the appellate court disagreed. They said that the evidence presented in Cindy's trial wasn't enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Cindy was involved in any way. Not only was Cindy ordered to be released from prison, but the ruling also meant that Cindy could never be retried for the murder of Jeff Zack. On March 22nd, 2007, after spending 16 months in prison, Cindy returned home. Ed and the seven children were absolutely ecstatic to have her back. And when she arrived, the family even greeted her with all these hugs and kisses, and they had a cake and balloons. And after she returned home, the family pretty much resumed a normal life. In 2015, two of the George daughters named Angelica and Antoinette officially took over the family business at the Tangier. Their goal was to maintain the history and uniqueness of the venue while also transitioning it into the future. The young women have this vision of turning the establishment into a place for a younger market in the banquet business. Many of the facilities at the Tangier have been remodeled, including the ballroom, and an updated mix of new decor has been added. Many events from weddings to corporate parties to class reunions are booked at the Tangier, and these events bring in about 75% of their revenue today. So it has really gone from, that place has really gone from just being a little pub to now being this huge place. I looked at their website. It looks gorgeous and beautiful yeah. and like just, just the type of place that you would want to have your wedding or your event at. I was telling Mandy this off mic. I was a little disappointed though, because I searched since they did cabarets and Countess Luann from Real Housewives of New York has not visited their establishment. So I hope she makes her way that way once COVID has passed, because that is a show not to be missed. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a crazy story. The funny thing is, I know the story from years ago, and I was trying to find it a long time ago for us to talk about it because it is it's fascinating. There's just so many facets and so many people in the story. Um, but I kept Googling murder and motorcycle because that's all I could really remember that it was, you know, her lover, which, you know, I love that word um, yeah. <laughs> that uh, that did that. But all I could remember is because that was just such a crazy thing that the guy's sitting at a gas station minding his own business and somebody comes there clearly with the entire purpose to shoot him and get out of there quickly. I don't know. It's just it's a it's an interesting story about family dynamics, too, because that's a whole story in itself, I think the um just the way their family kind of kind of worked and um I don't know just down to having the trial by judge all of it it's it's really 
hate to use the word interesting, but it is a very interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's very fascinating and different. There's just a lot of things in this case that are not typical of what you normally see. All right, Melissa, it is time to turn the page and go to last thing before we go. And it is also the first of the month. So that means that this week we have our hero segment. And I really love the hero this week. Me too. Um, Since this is June and in the US, this is the month of Father's Day. And my husband's going to remind me of that. We thought we would look for one, a hero that had to do with somebody having their hero as their father. So we found this one. And so this is from Mia. And um, Mia writes, my dad is my hero. I'm only 15 years old and I'm his only daughter. He has porphyria and we've been through a lot. At the time of my birth, he was ill and in the hospital across from my hospital. Even though he was sick, he made an effort to be there for my mom and I. Through the years, he has kept me safe and defended me against my two older brothers. He was there for each and every school concert and event. Not to brag, but I'm his favorite. We have a lot of inside jokes and I can't help but laugh at him when he is trying to cheer me up. I really, really love my dad. Oh, that. that's so sweet. <laughs> I love that so much. And yes, he sounds like such a wonderful dad. I know. I'm wondering where Mia is from because she spelled favorite with a U. And so interested to know where she's from. But that's such a great, a great email. Thanks for sending that. And if you have um, a hero you'd like to recognize in your life, email us at lastthingbeforewego at gmail.com. And the information's in the show notes as well. Just put hero in the subject line. And uh, we do this at the beginning of the month every month. We really enjoy doing this. So thank you, Mia, so much for sharing. Thank you, everyone that's shared before. We go through these, you know, every month. So if we haven't pictures yet, it may just be in line for another month. So but I won't know until like the day before when we decide. Right. Because <laughs> we're not that far ahead on anything. So yay. So that was it for this week. I hope everybody has a wonderful week. We'll be back next week. Oh yeah. And in the meantime, if you want to check out our Patreon, we're going to have a bonus episode. It's about the murder house, which apparently is something from Ooh, American Horror spooky. Story. Spooky. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I I wasn't familiar with it, but I think it's something that American Horror Story, which you're, that's kind of your thing was based yeah. on maybe a season was based on <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we're doing that and that's at patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast. We have um, a new bonus episode every month and ad free early release episodes are there every week at 8 PM Eastern standard time on Sunday nights, because that is clockwork. <laughs> we get it up there on time. All right. That's, that's all, all right. the messages for me, Mandy. Awesome. All right. So we will see you guys back in, Wait, yeah, next week, same time, same place, new story. I think I added some extra things in there, but that's all right. I appreciated the, yeah, I appreciated the update. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.